Shalom Aleichem, and welcome back to, well, actually, we finished the Book of Maccabees, but welcome back nonetheless. This is the penultimate episode in this series, and we're going to use it to learn a bit about what happened after the Maccabean Revolt, besides what we've already learned about. In the wake of the Maccabean Revolt, materially, things get very good for the Jews, but spiritually, things go downhill very fast. There are two major mistakes made that contribute to our people's downhill trajectory, and we have to examine each of them in turn. The first mistake. We mentioned in the Shir on chapter 13 how once full independence was achieved, Shimon took up the post of Kohen Gadol and also adopted the title of Nasi, but he notably does not call himself a Melech. The reason for this dates all the way back to Parashat Vayachi. When Yaakov Avinu blesses his sons just before his death, he clarifies for each of them the role that their individual Shevets will play in building the Goy Kadosh, the holy nation destined to descend from them. Within the collective nation, Every Shevet has a unique role to play, and the role of each Shevet can't be fulfilled by any of the other tribes. Every Shevet has to remain true to their own mission if the nation as a whole can thrive. For example, Shevet Yisachar engages in full-time learning to provide scholars for the Sanhedrin, while Shevet Gad trains warriors and commanders to head the army. When Yaakov blesses Yehuda, he tells him that Lo yasur Shevet mi Yehuda, the scepter shall not depart from Yehuda. That is, the Melech will always be a descendant of Yehuda. We know, of course, that once David ben Yishai, who is the 10th generation from Yehuda son of Yaakov, once David is anointed as Melech, the kingship, the Malchut, remains in his family forever. Shevet Levi has a different role. Shevet Levi is tasked with the nation's spiritual leadership. Levi, back in Eretz Israel, Levi lived interspersed among the other tribes in 48 cities across the land. They taught the other tribes Torah, and elevated them spiritually, while the other tribes, in turn, provided for Shevet Levi's physical needs by giving them a tenth of their crops. And the sub-tribe within Levi, the Kohanim, served in the Beit HaMikdash with the aim of creating an environment of Kedusha dedicated to inspiring the visiting Jews to a life of spiritual growth and closeness to Hashem, instead of the Jews being drawn after the law of idol worship. Now, Shimon is a Kohen, and as such he knows that although for all intents and purposes he is ruling the people, he cannot take on the title of Melech, as he does not descend from Shevet Yehuda. His descendants also do not hail from Shevet Yehuda. Unfortunately, they do not respect Shimon's distinction, and his descendants begin a new ruling dynasty in Eretz Yisrael, known as the Malchut Chashmina'i, the Hasmonean dynasty, which will last 103 years until Herod the Great begins to rule. This was a grave error on the Chashmina'im's part, and because of this, their family was eventually wiped out completely. There's a well-known Ramban on the Pasuk we quoted above, Loyasor Shevet Mi'uhuda, in which Ramban explains that although the Chashminaim were supremely pious people, and if not for them, the Torah would have been forgotten from Bnei Israel, they suffered terribly because they adopted the mantle of kingship without being descended from Yehuda ben Yaakov and David HaMelech. This, says Ramban, is the reason why the sons of Matityahu fell by the sword in battle, because they ruled where they should not have done. Although Ramban says that this is only true for the earlier Chashmanaim, the later ones were punished on account of being associated with the heretical Tzedakim, as we shall see. The second mistake made by the Chashmanaim was that even though Eretz Israel was liberated, there was a lot of Hellenistic influence still prevalent in Judea. Don't forget, the Greeks had a completely different worldview to us, and while we lived side by side with them in peace for the long time before the revolt, many of their foreign ideas infiltrated our thinking. This process was accelerated, and Antiochus Epiphanes began the forced Hellenization, 
And as a result, after the Maccabean revolt, the Hellenistic mode of thinking still dominated Judea. Now, it must be emphasized that efforts were made to reintroduce Torah to the masses, because Antiochus outlawed that as well. But after such close proximity to Greek thought for such an extended time, many Jews were still caught up in the Greek worldview without even realizing that they were not seeing the world through the unique Hebrew worldview. You can learn Torah and still be thinking like a Greek. Apparently, the Chashmilaim did not make enough efforts to undo this. They never went through the process of figuring out just how were we influenced by so much interaction with Greek thought? How did we change because of our exile in Babylon? Have we changed our worldview because of it? What changes do we need to make to return to the worldview of our ancestors? Is there anything from the Greeks that we might want to keep? And what do we have to discard? But we never went through this process of decolonizing our identity and our worldview. As a result of this, the Hellenistic influence was allowed to remain strong, and many of the later Hashminati kings became totally Hellenized themselves. This paved the road for the Roman general Pompey to conquer Judea and subjugate us to Roman rule, as we shall see later. Now, this is a lesson we in our generation have to take away from the Maccabean revolt. Once more, we have liberated our country, but that's only half the job. We have to go through this process of decolonization and examine how were we affected by our lengthy exile and what changes it made to our worldview. And we have to learn to see with our ancient worldview once again, figuring out if there's anything we picked up in exile worth keeping and what do we need to discard. Again, using the metaphor of how we took gold out of Egypt, we need to figure out what we can give to the Mishkan and what has to be discarded for fear of being used to make a golden calf. So bearing both these problems in mind, the assumption of Malchut by Kohanim and the lack of decolonization efforts, let's take a look at what actually happened in Judea following the revolt. King Antiochus VII, brother of Demetrius, besieges Yochanan Hyrcanus in Yerushalayim, but relents at the onset of Sukkot, and actually, going forward, becomes Yochanan's ally. Yochanan then embarks on a campaign to conquer as much land as possible, and he greatly expands the borders of the Hashmonite kingdom. In doing so, Yochanan brings many new peoples under Jewish control, and he does something never done before or since in Jewish history. He forcibly converts them. This was a grave mistake on his part. Anyone who's read Megillat's Rut knows that we Jews do not go around converting people by force. We discourage non-Jews joining us. We don't encourage them, and we certainly don't force them. One of the converted peoples by Yochanan were the Idumeans, and this proved to be a grave mistake because one of the descendants of the Idumeans was King Herod, who, when he assumed power, murdered all the remaining Hashminaim, including his own wife. As well as this forced conversion, Yochanan Hyrcanus renews the Jews' friendship with the Romans, and following an argument with the rabbinic leadership, Yochanan defects from the Pirishim over to the Tzidokim. As we mentioned in the introduction, the Tzidokim were a breakaway sect who rejected the authority of the Torah Shabal Peh. They labelled the rabbis and God-fearing Jews the Pirishim, the separatists, much like how the modern reform movement labels Torah-observant Jews as orthodox, meaning traditional, out of fashion. Of course, this whole idea of different denominations within the Jewish world is flawed. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. The very premise of dividing Judaism into different denominations, or even the notion of having Judaism as a religion, this comes from diluting our people's Semitic identity into something that conforms with Western norms. It's not who we really are. Going back to Yochanan's rule, the rest of it, according to Josephus, is relatively stable. But then his son Yehuda Aristobulus takes over from him and things get even worse. Yehuda Aristobulus, again, was affiliated with the Tzidokim, not the Perishim. He was very Hellenized, and also the first Hashmonai ruler to take the title of Melech, 
This earns him criticism from the Sanhedrin. So Aristobulus persecutes many of the rabbis and the Perishim. He also has his own brother killed, but repents of this and dies after having reigned a year. Following his death, the throne is taken by his Hellenized brother, Alexander Yanai. He expands the borders of Judea even further, but he becomes even further alienated from the rabbinic leadership and executes 800 Perishim after forcing them to watch the slaughter of their families. During the executions, Alexander hosts a Greek-style feast. See how the seeds of Hellenism that were not uprooted following the revolts are bearing their tragic fruit now. The family who did so much to free Judea from the grip of Hellenism is now succumbing to the very thing it strived to break free from. After Alexander Yanai's death, the rabbis make a great feast celebrating his death. But Yanai's old supporters see what they're doing and begin killing hundreds more of them. Luckily at this point, Alexander's widow, Shlomit Hamalka, steps in and she actually manages to stop the killing and restore peace. To celebrate which, the rabbis make another feast. I know, Jews and food, but you gotta admit they did have what to celebrate. Anyway, Shlomit Hamalka rules for nine years and she is a genuine tzedekah. She's a genuinely righteous woman. During her reign, there is peace between the monarchy and the rabbis. In fact, Shlomit's brother was none other than Rabbi Shimon ben Shatach, one of the leading Tamidi Chachamim of his generation, who is mentioned in Pirkei Avot. The last two Hashminati rulers were the sons of Shlomit, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus, both of whom are totally Hellenized. They fight over who should be the next king, and when they can't decide, they decide to invite the Romans in to mediate their disputes. Josephus tells us what happens next in great detail. The Roman general Pompey jumps on their invite and moves his armies into Israel, slaughtering thousands of Jews in the process, subjugating Judea to Roman rule, and making Hyrcanus the puppet ruler of Judea. This Roman intervention basically ends the era of Jewish independence, which had begun under Matityahu and Yehuda, and reached a peak under Shimon. The Romans had actually reneged on their alliance with the Jews and began to subjugate us many years earlier, during the time of Yochanan Hyrcanus, but they didn't completely take over the country until Pompey's time. There's an interesting Gemara in Masechet of Odazara that teaches how the Romans let us be for 26 years before beginning to subjugate us. I have a theory that perhaps this corresponds to the 26 years we spent fighting the Greeks for independence, and as a reward, Hashem granted us 26 years of complete independence. Again, that's just a theory. Rambam says something very interesting about this in his Mishnah Torah, how the Hashminaim's alliance with Rome, which eventually caused our own downfall, actually has its roots in a much earlier event in Jewish history. When Yaakov Avinu was returning to Eretz Israel with his family, and he meets Esav on the way, Yaakov bows down to him. We know that Masa Avos Simon Levanim, and Rambam says that this bowing down was the root of the Hashminaim eventually becoming dependent on Rome. Following Pompey's takeover of Judea, Hyrcanus continues to rule, but like I said, he's only a puppet ruler. He's being guided by his general Antipater, who was a descendant of Idumeans forcibly converted by Yochanan Hyrcanus. Antipater managed to position himself in power, and his son becomes a very famous builder. No, not Bob the Builder, I'm talking about Herod. Herod taking the throne marks the official end of the Hashminatic dynasty, although he did marry a Hashminati princess named Miriam, a granddaughter of Hyrcanus. Now Herod is a very unstable man, and he ends up murdering Miriam and all remaining descendants of the Hashminatim. Hence we see how the Hashminatim taking the throne really did result in their complete annihilation. It's also why the Gemara in Bava Batra says, anyone who says he descends from the Hashminatim must be a slave, because Herod, a descendant of servants of the Hashminatim, murdered the last of the true Hashminatim. 
So anyone saying he is a descendant of the Hashemunaim must actually be descended from Herod, their slave. Herod rules for 33 years, and during his time as king, he undertakes some mammoth construction projects, including the fortress at Masada, and he completely makes over the Beit HaMikdash. But he's also an avowed Hellenist and aggressively pushes the Hellenization of Judea, which includes the persecution and murder of all rabbis. The Jewish upper classes also subscribe to Hellenism, while the mainstream Jews and the zealot minority reject it. All this contributes to the rise of the atmosphere of Sinat Chinam, as different Jewish sects arise and the discord between them increases. It doesn't happen overnight, but eventually the combination of internal strife among the Jews, the increasing Roman persecution and the unbridgeable ideological differences between the Jews and the pagan Romans culminates in the eruption of Hamad Hagadal, the Great Revolt, in which we declare war on Rome with initial success, but with our Sinat Chinam we tear ourselves apart and Hashem caused the war to end in disaster for us with the destruction of Bayit Sheni and more than a million Jews killed or sold into slavery. This was the beginning of Galat Adon, from which we have still not recovered after almost 2,000 years. So how do we view the Maccabean Revolt in the larger context of our people's history? In of itself, it's a truly miraculous and inspiring story, testifying to our people's spirit, faith and determination. But because the physical liberation wasn't followed up by ideological liberation, as we've discussed, everything the Maccabim accomplished was eventually undone, and they fell victim to the very Hellenism they fought against. But that wasn't the end of it. Back in chapter 2, we briefly mentioned the Zealots, the faction in Judean society who spearheaded the fight against Roman rule. Following the destruction, the rabbinic leadership, desperate to bring relief to a decimated people, tried to make peace with the Roman authorities and sought to downplay the zealots as a bunch of radical extremists and demonstrate that they, the zealots, were not an accurate representation of our people. The rabbis made efforts to distance the rest of the Jews from the teachings of the zealots for fear it would incite them into further rebellion against the Romans and bring down their wrath upon an already wrecked and shattered people. Mind you, even with their efforts, the Jews still revolted several times more culminating in the Bar Kokhba uprising nearly 70 years afterwards, which was finally crushed when the Roman army, led by General Julius Severus, destroyed Betar, the last stronghold of the Jewish forces. All this meant that the teachings of the Zealots, the Kanaim, the Torah that demands the liberation of Eretz Israel, that motivated both them and the Maccabim to fight, was largely lost to the general Judean populace. But as anyone familiar with Rabbi Yehuda's podcast may well know, this Torah never went away. Rather, it became the property of giants, being passed down teacher to students by the greatest leaders of the generations, like Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi in Crusader times, the Maharal of Prague in the 16th century CE, and Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna, the Vilna Gaon, around 200 years after him. But it was not studied by the average Jew on the street, until the year 1967, when the recapture of Yerushalayim in the Six-Day War led to this revolutionary Torah erupting back into the world like a volcano, and it's now being learned by many, many Jews in Israel. This brings us to the end of this episode. We'll return next time for one final episode, in which we run through the Maccabean Revolt one more time, and consult the Rambam to remind us what the Maccabean were fighting for.